Let's pray together. Oh, God. That's what we want. That prayer they just sang, that's our prayer. Close to You. Close to You. Close to You. Close to You. What else is there that we live for if not first for that? And so as Holy Scripture is brought into our minds today through the Holy Spirit, may it not only enter our minds, please let it enter our hearts that we might be drawn close to You through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let me share with you three stories as we embark upon our journey into a book called Romans. Story number one. He lived with a prostitute, but he had a praying mother who was relentless in her interceding before God on behalf of her profligate son. He became a professor of rhetoric and literature late one summer's afternoon. In Milan, Italy, his heart is broken. He cannot grasp deliverance from his guilt and salvation for his soul. And so he stumbles out of that little home into the backyard garden and he collapses. In his own words later, I threw myself down somehow under a certain fig tree and I let my tears flow freely. Thirty-two years old and he is sobbing his heart out. And then as if on cue from across the garden wall comes the little voice of a child calling out in his language, Tole legge, tole legge, take up and read, take up and read. He stumbled back to where he had thrown down that scroll and where his eyes alighted, he began to read Romans 13. He would later write, No further would I read, nor had I any need. Instantly at the end of the sentence, a clear light flooded my heart and all the darkness of doubt vanished away, end quote. It marked that afternoon in 386. It marked the conversion of Aurelius Augustinus, whom we have come to know as the greatest Latin church father and theologian named Augustine whose contribution to Christendom is so significant, so great, that F.F. F. Bruce writes, that contribution is something beyond our powers to compute. All because of the book of Romans. Write it down. Story number one, Augustine. You know the drill. Pull out your, your uh, new study guide that's in your worship bulletin today if you came with several and you didn't get a bulletin just hold your hand up our ushers are ready now to put a put a study guide in your hand those of you watching on television right now let me give the website to you you can find this study guide at www.pmchurch.tv go to that web address and click on to our brand new study series wine and milk without money part two New slavery, no shame. That's the one. Click it on and you will have the study guide right in front of you on that screen of your computer even as we have it here today. Story number one, all because of the book of Romans. Would you write it in please? Story number one, Augustine. Write in Augustine. Story number one. 
Story number two, a young Augustinian monk. All right? A follower of this Augustine, a young Augustinian monk is plunged into the same spiritual crisis. And in November, he teaches sacred theology at a little university in a backwater village called Wittenberg in Germany. He begins a class lecturing to his students day after day. He starts in November and that class goes all the way to the next September. Every day he's plunged into the book of Romans and his heart would be free but for a ball and chain that holds him down. Let him describe what it is he's struggling over. The words of this young professor, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God, because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy He justifies us by faith. Thereupon, get this, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. One more line, this passage of Paul became to me a Gateway to heaven, end quote. So wrote that professor, Martin Luther. Write it down. All because of the book of Romans. Story number two, Martin Luther. A year later, a year later, the mighty Protestant Reformation is ignited. All because of the book of Romans. Story number three. It was the evening of May 24, 1738. A man in his 30s, as he would later describe it, went very unwillingly to an upper room above Aldersgate Street in old London town where a group of friends of his had gathered for a Bible study and prayer. And wouldn't you know it, the man up front in that little small group is reading from Luther's commentary to the book of Romans, the preface of that commentary. Later, that man in that upper room would record these words in his journal about a quarter before nine... While he, Luther and the man up front, was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that He had taken my sins away, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That night marked the conversion of a struggling young in his 30s preacher named John Wesley. Write it down. John Wesley. And the rest is history. The greatest revival in the history of the Christian church. The great Wesleyan revival. All because of the book of Romans. You follow that thread? Did you see that thread? It started with St. Paul and then it was woven into Augustine and then woven across the centuries into Martin Luther and then woven into John Wesley and now the thread comes to you and me. And like that little child cries out, we take up now and read. What will happen to us? What will happen to us with this book? F.F. Bruce, the great New Testament scholar, I put it in your study guide. I wanted you to have this. He writes, there is no telling what may happen when people begin to study the epistle to Romans. What happened to Augustine? 
Luther and Wesley launched great spiritual movements which have left their mark in world history. But, 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 but similar things have happened much more frequently to very ordinary people as the words of this epistle came home to them with power. So, let those who have read thus far be prepared for the consequences of reading further. You have been warned. I like it. Open your Bible now then. Now, having been forewarned, open your Bible please to that great epistle, the Epistle of Romans. Find the book of Romans in the New Testament. Romans 1, 1. Romans 1, 1. I thought today that we could get all the way to verse 17. Come on, Romans 1, 1. Find it. Romans 1, 1. I'll be in the New International Version. Whatever translation you have, just bring a Bible in this new study series that you can mark up yourself. Don't mark up the Pew Bible. You just read the Pew Bible. Bring your own to mark up. All right, Romans 1.1, here we go. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. I had hoped to get to verse 17, but you know what? I can't get past the first four words in the Greek. Because in those first four words is a radical secret that can blow the lid off of our rather tepid, hesitant, bland brand of religion around this place. The first four words, do you know what they are? Let me put it on the screen for you. They are in Greek. There they are. Paulos, doulos, Christu, Yesu. The first four words. And by the way, it is a letter he is writing. So go ahead in your study guide. Let's fill in the letter. Actually, the letter, if, we were, if he were writing today, he would write this way. Dear strangers. Would you write in the word strangers, please? Do you know what? These people Paul has never met in his life. Oh, there are a handful of them. He knows my name at the end of the book. But every other book Paul has written, every other letter, they're all addressed to churches and leaders he has personally raised up. He doesn't know any of these. He has to come as a stranger, which is why, by the way, this is the longest introduction of all his letters and the most theologically complex because he needs to put down his credentials right on the table at the outset. I have reason to be your spiritual leader. He has to prove it. Ah, this is a tough one, tough assignment. Dear strangers, but soon to be friends. Write it in. Oh, the terms of endearment that, it, that are expressed in this letter become evident as soon as you begin to read it. And by the way, not a bad idea. Why don't you read Romans through between this Sabbath and next? Read it all the way through. You can do it. The terms of endearment. Dear strangers, but soon to be friends. Keep going now. I am Paul. That's how we do it today. <clears throat> Pardon me. That's how we do it. I am Paul. A slave, write it in, a slave of Christ Jesus. In the Greek, Paulos doulos, Christu Yestu. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, because that is precisely the word Paul intentionally chooses. I am a slave of Christ Jesus. I am a slave of Christ Jesus and proud of it. You say, oh, come on, Dwight, he's not going that far. Oh, yes, he is. Do you notice? The very next word to his name is slave. I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. I am Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Paulos, doulos, Christu, Jesu. I like the way the New Living Translation renders this. This letter is from Paul, Jesus Christ's slave. Or the message, the message. 
I, Paul, am a devoted slave of Jesus Christ. Are you? Are you? A rather dramatic way to introduce yourself to strangers, isn't it? By the way, hi, I, I, I am Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. I mean, you try that the next time you're in a line at the checkout counter at Walmart. You'll either start the conversation or end it immediately. Hi, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Who are you? What does it mean, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus? What does it mean to be a slave? I, you say, hey, listen, Dwight, I don't know. There are no more slaves in this third millennium. How should I know? Oh, how wrong you are. How wrong. Do you remember where we went last Sabbath? We went to the country of Sudan. You remember that? Sudan. And, we, and what were we exploring last week? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. We stared upon those pictures of human starvation. But did you know that Sudan is not only infamous for its famine and genocide. And by the way, this Thursday, Colin Powell came out and declared it is genocide in that country. Not only is it infamous for famine and genocide, it is also notorious for its trafficking in the slave trade. Listen, Boston Globe, Charles Jacobs. I'll put some pictures on the screen while I read this short piece. Atrocities there in Sudan exceed every other world horror. For 10 years, the blacks of South Sudan have been victims of an onslaught that has taken more than 2 million lives. Colin Powell calls it the worst human rights nightmare on the planet. In Khartoum, that would be the capital, a Taliban-like Muslim regime is waging a self-declared jihad on African Christians and followers of tribal faiths in South Sudan. Non-Arab African Muslims are also targeted for devastation. Two million people have been killed, more than in Bosnia, Kosovo, Somalia, Haiti, Rwanda, and Burundi combined. Tens of thousands have been displaced and 100,000, according to the U.S. Committee on Refugees, forcibly starved. Now here it goes. Western lack of interest is all the more as Khartoum's onslaught has rekindled the trade in black slaves, halted mostly a century ago by British abolitionists. Listen on. Arab militias storm African villages, kill the men, and enslave women and children. Accounts by journalists and others depict the horror in these pogroms. After the men are slaughtered, the women, girls, and boys are gang-raped or they have their throats slit for resisting. The terrorized survivors are marched northward and distributed to Arab masters, the women to become concubines, the girls to men the boys goat herders, end quote. Don't you tell me we don't know the meaning of human chattel and slavery in the third millennium. So what does it mean to be a slave? Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. What's it mean? It means the same thing it's meant throughout the ages. In fact, would you take your study guide out, please, and fill it in. What does it mean to be a slave? Number one, to be a slave... <clears throat> means you have, write it in, a master. To be a slave means you have a master. Number two, slaves are people who are purchased and possessed by someone else. That's what it means to be a slave. And then I came up with number three after the study guides had already been printed. So you'll have to hurry, but just scribble it in, please. We'll put it on the screen for you. Number three, slaves are totally dependent upon their masters for survival. They have nothing by which to survive. They are dependent on the master. 
Number three, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus means, get this, number one, Paul has a master, capital M, master. Number two, Paul has been purchased and possessed by his master. And number three, Paul is totally dependent upon his master for life and survival. Only four words into this epistle and Paul is already hinting at what will become the grandest truth that Romans champions and that is we are utterly dependent upon an alien righteousness and external salvation bestowed upon us by a benevolent master and a righteous and loving God. Oh, don't miss the critical, critical study next Sabbath. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Are you? <laughs> you may be responding. You know something, Pastor? You kidding? I mean, this notion of slavery, I find it utterly degrading and revolting. I am nobody's slave. Oh, I beg to differ with you, sir. Take the code word slave that Paul has. Track it into the heart of Romans. And you'll come to Romans chapter 6. Just turn a couple pages over to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. We'll have a day when we can have some time in Romans 6. But take a look at this. Romans chapter 6. This would be verse 16. Alright? Paul asking, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or slaves to obedience, which leads to righteousness. You don't have a choice. Paul is trying to get through to us that life is ultimately a choice of masters. You don't have, you, our choice is not, shall I have a master or not? Our choice is simply, which master shall I have? And by the way, this is hardly new with Paul. You remember Jesus in that mighty Sermon on the Mount... You remember Jesus spoke these words, you cannot, no one can have two masters. For you will either love the one and hate the other, or you will hate the one and love the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and the devil. You have to pick a master. In fact, I'm, I'm uh, worshiping my way now through the Old Testament. Book of Kings, just this last week, Book of Kings, came to one of my... All-time favorite stories. You know the story. Bushy-bearded, camel-haired. He's standing on the top of that mountain all alone while he is surrounded by the masses of Israel. And you remember Elijah looks into those muted faces and he cries out, How long are you going to go limping between two opinions? If God is God, follow Him. If Baal is God, follow Him. You have to pick. You have to pick. Life is ultimately a choice of masters. Would you write it in, please? You cannot not be a slave. You're already one. You cannot not have a master. You already have one. All you can do is to choose which one. And by the way, to not choose is to choose. You're stuck, and so am I. So whose slave are you? Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Are you? As an executive? As a student? As an academic? As a domestic? 
How radical, how militant are you in declaring your allegiance to your capital M Master? Hmm? In the classroom, in the committee room, the boardroom, the dorm room, the playroom, the game room, the workroom. Do you overtly... Are, are, are you unabashedly carrying yourself and conducting your life as a slave of Christ Jesus? The late Henry Nouwen, these words are in your study guide, in his final journal entitled Sabbatical Journey, published posthumously, brooded over what might be the result if we would live as the slaves of Christ. I'm reading now, we might think about ourselves as converted slaves who continue to live in this world. To be in the world without being of the world. To use the tactics of the world in the service of the kingdom. To respond to people with wealth in a fearless way. Convinced that you have more to offer than to receive. <laughs> to plead for the poor in ways that the rich can understand. To carry the gospel in one hand and a stick in the other. All of that is part of Paul's militant servanthood. It is also part of our common journey home. End quote. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Talking about blowing the lid off of our hesitant, timid, bland brand of religion these days. Hey, let me tell you something. Remembering you're a slave can actually set you free. I'm going to close with three ways it can set you free. Remembering you're a slave can actually set you free. Would you write these three ways down, please? Number one, remembering that you're a slave will settle your personal loyalty issues. Write in loyalty. Loyalty as a Christian? Sure. Loyalty as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian? Why not? Hey, drop down. You, you, have, you have Romans 1? Let's go back to Romans 1. Uh, drop down. The introduction is coming to an end there in verse 7. So we'll pick up verse 6. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Verse 7, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Two calls. You're called to belong. You belong to Jesus Christ. You're called to be a saint. And by the way, what is a saint? A saint is somebody who belongs to Jesus. Isn't that right? And by the way, that works all the way down to the final generation on earth. Let me put one more text on the screen for you. The Apocalypse. Revelation chapter 14, verse 12. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints. The last generation. On the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful. To Jesus. Remain loyal. That's what it is. Remain loyal. What is faithfulness? It's to be loyal. Hey, look. Why is it that nobody speaks up for Him anymore? I mean, you think about it. Why is it that we have so privatized religion that we can no longer feel comfortable being publicly loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ? When was the last time you were at a party? Not you, perhaps, but somebody interrupted the flow and the ebb and flow of that party conversation and said a word. Hey, by the way, I want to bring up Jesus right now. Or, oh no, by the way, I am not sure Jesus would be comfortable with this just here. When was the last time? Well, no, no, privatize, keep it to yourself. When was the last time? Hey, when was the last time you went to a went to a Sabbath potluck, and he got injected into the conversation? I mean, come on, we talk about everything all all everything under the sun, but what about the Lord Jesus? 
And by the way, that's no exception for boards, even ecclesiastical boards, except for their pro forma, beginning with a prayer. When was the last committee you sat on where somebody actually injected Jesus into the, into the discussion? By the way, what do you think? How would Jesus relate to this, this issue we are struggling with right now? Nobody does it. The last time you had a dorm room huddle, did Jesus make it to that? We've privatized it. I tell you what, when you remember that you are a slave of Christ Jesus, suddenly it's no longer about you. It's about the master. Nobody cares about the slave. It's the master that draws the attention. Loyal as a slave. May I say something? I don't want to be misunderstood here. So let me get back to my notes. Uh, When we remember we as... Adventist Christians belong to Christ, it frees us. It frees us to live a proactive loyalty that is both gutsy and infectious. Now here it goes. Loyal souls. Loyal souls command attention. I've been on this campus just a few years. But I have noticed, I have noticed that students who have a red-hot loyalty for Jesus and His truth stand out. And command attention. Now, the caveat is the issue of life. The whole goal of life is not to command attention to ourselves. It's not to stand out. But loyalty means you stand up for your master. I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. Do you understand that? I stand up for him. I've been here a few years and I have noticed that the most influential faculty, the most influential, regarded in this community as so, are the ones who are unabashedly loyal to Jesus Christ and His truth. They just stand out. You know why? And they they attract. You know why? Because young adults, this generation, longs to see somebody live what you believe. I want to see it. Prove it to me. Show me that that passion is well placed. Loyalty commands attention. Again, the caveat, the issue is not commanding attention for ourselves. It's not standing out. It's standing up for the Lord Jesus. Three ways remembering you are a slave of Christ Jesus will set you free. Way number one, it deals with your your personal loyalty issues. Number two, it deals with your public timidity. Write it in. Timidity issues. You see, when I know and remind myself that I am a slave of Christ Jesus. And by the way, time out, time out, time out. You understand that that's why, that, that's one of the, the great values of having private worship in the morning. You understand that, don't you? When you kneel down at the feet of your capital M Master, it gets you started right off at the beginning with the, with the realization, I am, I am His slave. Now some of you are a little bit uncomfortable with, uncomfortable with this slave motif. And if you'll just hang in until uh, Romans 8, you'll get the son and daughter motif. But right now, Paul says, I wanna, I'm, a, I'm a stranger to you. Let me tell you the most important thing about me. I am a slave of Christ Jesus. When you have your private worship in the morning, and you put your face in the rug when you pray, you put your face in the rug and you see the nail-scarred feet of your master standing in front of you, it just sears it into your consciousness, at least for that day, I am a slave of Christ Jesus. And you know what? Once you know that you are a slave of the master, suddenly all that hesitation about, well, 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 what would I say? 
the, par- the paradigm gets radically shifted because the question no longer is, what will they think of me? The question now for every slave is, what will they think of him? You're no longer paralyzed by your introspective self-preoccupation. I read a book this summer by Ellie Maxwell. It's called Embracing the Cross. Powerful book. And I came to this line near the end of the book. I I put it in your study guide for you. May I share this? Read this in your hearing. We insist that the great lack today is a mighty liberation through an inner crucifixion of self. Oh, when we get to Romans 6, one of the most strategic teachings, and I, I have struggled with that chapter, but I think there's a way through it. Romans 6. That'd be days away. We insist that the great lack today is a mighty liberation through the inner crucifixion of self and ego. Just get it out of the way, which, by the way, will give us holy, I like this, holy carefreeness. And now notice, spiritual boldness is simply unembarrassed freedom of speech. Isn't that good? You want to be spiritually bold on this campus and in the world into which you move? Then, remember... I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. It's not about me. It's always about Him. And it will set your tongue, even loosen your tongue. We need, a, we need a new generation in Adventism that will be, how did he put it here, that will have unembarrassed freedom of speech when it comes to defending Jesus our Master and His truth for this generation. Oh, we need an unembarrassed generation. Just remember you're a slave. No longer embarrassed about yourself because it's not about you. It's about the master. Okay, there are three of them. I want to close with this one. Here comes number three. Number one, it will deal with your personal loyalty issues. Number two, it will deal with your public timidity issues. And number three, it will deal with your private anxiety issues. Because every slave knows that his master has invested in him. Her master has invested in her. I mean, that's why I'm a slave. Somebody bought me. Isn't that true? Somebody bought me. I belong to someone. And by the way, since he has invested in me, would it not follow that he would protect that investment? How much has the master invested in you? Just a few days ago, it came out on DVD. The Passion of the Christ. And while I know that it has created controversy in some circles... I'm going to go ahead and say this anyway. Perhaps the greatest value of this controversial production is its graphic reminder of the bloody price God paid to ransom our enslaved souls from the dark taskmaster Satan. When you go to the cross, and I know that not all of you are visual. Some of us are visual. Some of you are auditory. You just need to hear it. So you just read the Gospels. But there are some who need a visual on the cross. When you look into the face of the dying Savior, Calvary prompts, it's a default question, my God, did you really pay this much for me? When you know how much the Master has invested to purchase you. You say, wait a minute, Dwight, but what does that have to do with anxiety? Oh, anxiety? Why worry? Why worry? In fact, we, we don't need this on the screen. Just, just turn one more text before I sit down. Look at, look at Romans chapter 8. Oh, we'll get to Romans 8 eventually. But take a look at this. Why worry? 
Because you have Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, hold on, hold on. Here comes verse 32. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? All things. Some of you today, I heard that prayer. Some of you today are worried about your financial closure in the business office. I'm telling you what, you are a slave of Christ Jesus. And He has invested Calvary in you. Don't you think He will protect that investment till His, to your dying day? Some of you are worrying about what will I eat? What shall I wear? How will I survive? What about my family? Forget it. No worries. No worries. Rick Warren. You remember Rick Warren? We went through that book last year, The Purpose Driven Church. Uh, Purpose Driven Life, rather. Take a look at this. Rick Warren has defined worry. Worry is meditating on your problems. That's what it is. You're just going over and over those problems. And that's what you're doing. You're meditating on your problems. I am a slave of Christ Jesus. No worries. He bought me. He'll have to keep me alive. And if I can glorify you by dying, then let it rip. I will go. You never have to worry about life or death when you know you're a slave. Loved by your master. My little girl, you probably have heard of her, got married last Sunday. Married a wonderful young man. And I just was on the phone with him late last night. I told him, for the rest of your life, I'll call you every night, okay? I just call you, just... No, it's not true. Uh, but I wanted to check, with, check in with him on Friday night. And so, anyway, I had a nice visit. Uh, but Chrissy, when she was little, used to have a saying that she put up on her mirror in the vanity in her bedroom. I love this. There's a lot of truth in this. Let me put it on the screen for you. Don't go to God... And tell him you have a big problem. Go to your problem and tell it you have a big God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. When you're a slave with that big a master, what's to worry? Why worry? Cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Ladies and gentlemen, the introduction to the book of Romans, it begins with the words, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. And that little introduction ends with the words, grace and peace to you. Do you know why? Because remembering you're a slave can actually set you free. And living with that kind of freedom is what grace and peace are all about. Let us pray. Oh God. In the words of that blind composer, George Matheson, Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Imprison me within Thine arms, and I shall conqueror be. My heart is weak and poor, till it a master find. Enslave it with Thy matchless love, it must its crown resign. O oh God, please, set us free by making us slaves. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.